Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Controversial subjects with the facts can be tense, but we are a science here to make things make sense. Today we are talking with Audrey Tong, a Taiwanese genius in the field of tech who is also considered one of the thought leaders in AI and also happens to be one of the first non-binary politicians. Super exciting interview, but first we're talking about the pill for birth control (laughs) as well as eye contact and what it says about you. Wow. I can never remember everything at once, okay? We were just in Taiwan. I'm so jet lagged. My brain's not functioning. Okay. <laughs> no, no, that's a, that's a very fair excuse. The 12 hour difference. Some might even say 13 hour difference. You're good. Yeah. Some would say 13 because that's <laughs> actually the amount it is. <laughs> it is such a cool interview. Audrey Tong is was the coolest part about going to Taiwan. I yeah, think. they were so interesting. <laughs> like I, the interview was so fascinating, and and even just hanging out with them was like a really cool. And they experience. have tangible like information about how to be happier in the world of Mm -hmm. the internet and tech that I think is so interesting. Yeah. I'm like edging y'all for that conversation, (laughs) but I was like, I like actually like we need to change a lot of our lives and I was obsessed with them and obviously happy to have been in Taiwan, but I don't know. There was something about her and talking to her that I thought was like, I don't know, like life was opening. Yeah. Yeah. And they literally were considered like a genius since they were five years old. Yeah. They read like complicated (laughs) novels when they were five and they learned code when they were six. I tried to ask them that off the beginning of the interview and it was almost like they're so smart that they were trying to explain their child genius life. And it was just like, it's not even registering because they're just like, I'm like, I still don't know what any of that means. Exactly. You're like, she said the type of code she learned when she was like six. And I was just like, I don't know what that is, but I don't want to ask. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, it was wild. But yeah, we had a great time in Taiwan. Uh, but truly, before I went and coming home, I was researching like how to deal with jet. Like, what are the best strategies? Like, what can you do? Nothing works, just so you know. <laughs> Being old also definitely doesn't help. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, yeah, You what works is time and it's hell. But it's like, whatever, it's a privileged type of hell. We I just don't remember and... it happening to me so strongly when I was younger and been to these places. But maybe, I don't know. You're older, different... you just said it. I know, but no is friends. that really it? Is that, yeah, yeah I think, I think so. I've it? talked to people about it and they were like, yeah, you're old now. Oh my like friends. It's like, like, actually was crazy yeah and no, now that no. we're home i'm just re-experiencing it all again <laughs> and it's like uh, we're on day like four or five and i'm just like when does this go away yeah no it's like you'll need another week but let's get into what we learned this week okay oh what did we learn this week so i learned about how the birth control pill makes you less horny which i was like what like the actual pill itself makes women's libido go down and some some doctors and people think it's 
could have permanent damage of oh. low sex drive. Well, like even after taking, after yes. stopping. And I was like, imagine a man, male birth control pill that caused low sex drive. Like that yeah. would be absolutely like revolution the in the there streets. There would be full revolution. The TikTok <laughs> bros would be like the vi- the endless video. <laughs> Joe Rogan would be like crying. Like, oh. <laughs> but um, the reason it's not sort of been considered an issue is because the FDA doesn't consider sexual behavior like a, a, a like meaningful enough side effect. I see. Because it's kind of like. It's not like, oh, it's giving you a sickness or a disease. Yeah. Like, categorize that But separate. now again, it's like, are you kidding? That's like men are designing their lives around their sex drive. Like, yeah. And that should like something. be on the box. <laughs> yeah. It should definitely <laughs> so be on the box. At least so you know, like you don't have to feel any kind of way or at least at least understanding, okay, this is a symptom. And if that's happening to me, I can kind at of least understand know yeah. where it's coming from. And it's the, your sex drive is the lowest in the middle of your cycle but essentially what it is is like the pill has estrogen progesterone in it that obviously affects testosterone but if you have a vagina testosterone is the hormone that controls your libido Mm. so the actual there's a protein that gets triggered to increase when you take the pill it's called the sex hormone binding globulin and this protein decreases testosterone in the body Mm. so women take the pill they have decreased testosterone this causes and can cause a lower libido decreased sex drive and they're now thinking it could have like lifelong damage to your sex drive is that crazy i know i was like reading this like what apparently Mm. doctors will tell you but like i don't know it's the pill you need it like yeah Yeah, it's interesting because i obviously as a gay man i feel so far removed from like i I feel like probably even straight men know more about this than yeah just because like their partners or girlfriends or whatever would have to be taking it not have to but you know what i mean um so i'm just like i actually don't i don't even have a baseline yeah maybe maybe people are like yeah i know it makes me less horny but but then i'm just sitting there like what But it's. I find it interesting that you were like, it's not considered a side effect. That's yeah. It's just another example of like truly science just being completely like ignoring the female experience. Like, if it's just a classic sexist, if the tables were turned, like the pill would have been updated and modified years ago if men were losing their sex drive. And I get why, (laughs) like a a woman would want to, or like a female would want to take their own bodily autonomy in some cases. But it's also like there should be a version for men. I still understand why there should be a version for females to like be able to take themselves and know it's like on their own accord but i'm like it it definitely science could have figured this out it's like yeah just like kill the sperm yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay mine is about eye contact which i know a lot of people have a challenge with i'm curious like you know i like to start mine with the question question. yeah what's your relationship to eye contact (laughs) greg oh this is such a loaded question um I'm good with eye contact as long as it's not being addressed. <laughs> as soon as someone's like, look at me. Look at me. Or like as soon as I start thinking I'm looking in someone's eyes, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I definitely think it's something I'm like, there are people who are like eye contact forward and uh-huh. they make me uncomfortable. I, know, I think you're not alone. And so this was a study that was looking into how common eye contact, now we're staring at each yeah, other, I eye actually, contact like, actually is and how it impacts relationships and like um, behavior. So they... Basically, in this study, it's from McGill, which is like in Montreal near us. Whoa, gorgeous um, university. <laughs> they Can realized con. people only look at each other's faces simultaneously, 12% in a conversation. Yeah, that makes sense. But they only make eye contact oh. simultaneously 3.5% of Whoa. the time. So like you might look at somebody's mouth or that their forehead. Normal. 
Yeah, but when you realize like what eye contact, you think as a species it's so important, but only 3.5% of a conversation do people make eye contact. Yeah, also you just pointed at me while doing that. It was so scary. <laughs> well, really no, but intense. like, isn't it like threatening to like in dogs and stuff? Like, don't you think there could be like a threatening vibe? Maybe, yeah. Like it's an obviously like an evolutionary. Like, obviously we're not just like And gazing. even when they're like, you see clips of people like being around gorillas, they're like, do not make eye contact. Like yeah. you have to like look at the ground. Yeah, like it doesn't seem that odd to me. It says when they did look at each other's faces, they looked equally often at the mouth and eye Yeah, I love and, looking at the mouth. And there was very little mutual eye-to-eye contact. So Unless like you could look like, at someone's eyes quickly yeah. and they're not looking at yours. But um, Okay, that makes me feel way better. So what they found interesting was the time spent looking directly into each other's eyes predicted where their eyes would go next. Uh, so it was like when people looked at each other's eyes, they were more likely to... F- if I look at your eyes, I'm more likely to follow where your eyes go next. Okay. So yeah. I, I, to me, I'm like, I don't totally understand what that implicates, but they were like, from when people would make eye yeah. contact, we could predict where they would next look based, based off of yeah, the Yeah, that partner. makes sense. You would look where the other person's looking. Yeah. So there's like, like some sort of level of connection where now suddenly once we've done this behavior of eye contact, we are like connected in a way that our behavior after that is much more predictable. Hmm. which I thought was interesting. Their like overall summary said humans engage in looking patterns towards different face parts during interactions with direct eye to eye looks occurring relatively infrequently. However, social messages relaying during eye to eye contact appear to carry key information that propagates to affect subsequent individual social behavior. That is so <laughs> annoying. I hate when studies are so complicated. It's like, Literally, they're just saying, oh, we found that they kind of looked in the same direction sometimes after yeah. they looked at each other. <laughs> and it's also like, that doesn't mean that you're connected. Not connected, but it's interesting to be able to predict a behavior. Yes, yes. So if, if you're, yes. it's not very predictable until that <laughs> moment, they're like, we can predict with pretty good accuracy where they'll look next. Science is so annoying sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, speak English. Actually, yeah, we talked about that with Audrey Tong about AI and how it might implicate science communication mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe we should get into it. It's so good. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're excited for you guys to hear this interview. <laughs> I want to listen to it. Yeah. Again. Me too. I'm excited. Take to notes because there's some important information. Uh, yeah. Especially about like tech interactions. Yeah, the stylus. Yeah. Okay. Ah. Well, we'll take a break and come back with Audrey Tong. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you so much for being here. We're so happy to chat with you. We're obsessed with you. Yes. We heard a rumor 
that when you were very young, maybe mm -hmm. even five years old, you were already considered like a genius reading very complicated works. Is this true? Uh, just the Tao Te Ching. But do you have a memory of like doing complicated math and stuff at that age? Yeah, around six or seven. Uh, and I love mathematics, but I didn't like math at all. Really? So when I was eight years old and I discovered this thing called a computer uh, <laughs> that can do all the math for me <laughs> and then leave me to do the mathematics. Yeah. I, I was so excited, except we didn't have a computer at home. Right, so I just uh, put out an A4 paper and drew uh, with a pen uh, the QWERTY keyboard yeah. uh, and then use a pencil. Every day I just wake up and I type CLS enter uh, and just erase uh, that. That was when I was eight years old. Wow. And wow. after a few weeks doing that, my parents just, you know, gave me a person that can be. Yeah, like, I think it's time to, so that was just sort of in your nature from yeah, exactly. when you were young. You just felt a co like compelled mm -hmm. and interested in it from the get-go. Yeah, definitely. And for the longest time, I would just, you know, play a video game, uh, maybe in some friend's home and so on, and just go back home and just recode that video game from scratch. Wow. Yeah. What? <laughs> oh my god. And figured out how to like recreate them, right. learn how to actually code Well, well nowadays, language models do that quicker, right? right. <laughs> but the, that was formative. Wow. Like, do you think that that is something, when it comes to like people learning new skills, learning mm -hmm. things, do you think it's best to hone in on what naturally interests you? Or do you think mm -hmm. that people can, somebody who maybe thinks they don't like mathematics, if they try mm -hmm. hard enough, is it this, the mm -hmm. path they should go? Like, is it best to follow your instinct or follow what you want to do? Uh, and I think both actually work together because if you work on the time saving part, uh, like things that I want, mm -hmm. uh, then it leaves more time to pursue the intrinsic motivations, mm. like things that I love, right? Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's only when uh, we forget this balance uh, do we get into, you know, uh, sucked into a job that just does the routine work yeah. uh, or just close off in one's own world without yeah. interacting with the e external world. And what I love about programming uh, is that it is like, um, notes to a melody that shapes how people interact. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, to me, computation is fundamentally social uh, or belongs to a community. When I write a video game, I share it with the kids that I knew uh, back in the 90s. And the, um, people really loved how they can learn mathematics easier yeah. uh, by playing the video games mm -hmm. uh, that, that I coded. I think the first one I coded was learning uh, fraction numbers uh, by placing uh, balloons on a number line. Uh, and then uh, you can guess uh, where the balloon is like uh, two third or two slash three. Uh, right. And then uh, there's a dart uh, shooting that point and you would be off by a little bit. And so right. you, you uh, basically learn the fraction numbers very easily. Yeah. Wow. wow, you made math fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is a challenge for a lot of people. Has that always been part of your interest to mm -hmm. make things accessible to others? Yeah. Definitely, uh, yes. And also, I think equally important is that uh, I didn't attend uh, formal education after when I was 14 years old. So I'm really? a junior high dropout. Right. Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. So like literally everything I learned after that came from the internet. Wow. Uh, from open access and so yeah. on. So without open access, I, I wouldn't exist in my current form. But you started to work at a young age, right? Like in, uh -huh. what did you work in? when you uh, were... 15. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, what so was your first, like what were the first CTO things? CTO of a search engine company. Uh, wow, wow. Yeah. I'm curious oh. about your thoughts around open mm -hmm. access. Obviously that's like transformed the world. The internet has transformed the world mm -hmm. in so many ways. 
do you see that as like a fundamental shift in society, allowing mm -hmm. people who maybe otherwise don't have access to things to suddenly be able to learn so much mm -hmm. that they would have to pay a lot for maybe? Exactly. Yeah, so before the internet, uh, when we talk about neighborhood or neighbors, it means people who are physically close to us. Uh, but now after the internet, it means that people who share our values. Hmm. Right, so with some commitments into maybe adjusting sleep patterns, <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can be in a community uh, with a very distributed constituency uh, anywhere around the world that share a interest in science, in communication, and so on, become more like kinsfolk or tribe, uh, even compared to people who are physically close to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like I, this may be me jumping a little bit ahead of the mm -hmm. conversation, but I'm curious about your thoughts around. You know, so many of us are connected by the internet mm -hmm. now and we live in these digital spaces, yeah. which can be really fun and you can learn so much. But in some ways we hear about people sometimes mm -hmm. feeling disconnected from the real mm -hmm. world, like mm -hmm. maybe missing some of that in-person community. Mm -hmm. Do you think about that? Like, is there some type of balance we need to focus on to make sure we're getting that in-person neighborhood mm -hmm. connection as well as our digital neighborhood connection? Yeah. Um I found that the only thing that keeps me uh, isolated from the uh, physical closeness is touch screens. Mm. So I don't have any problem putting down my computer mm -hmm. or my phone <clears throat> if I'm operating through a stylus uh, or a mouse or a keyboard. Mm. Mm. Because, like because these are intentional. Right? I, I think about where I need to uh, point and click. Mm. And then I go ahead and point and click on it. But with touch screens, it becomes very difficult because after a while, uh, my brain thinks the screen is part of my limb mm -hmm. uh, and it, it starts scrolling me. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so there's even a word for that doom scrolling. Right? Yes. Uh, people Just... literally cannot put it down. So you see a differentiation mm -hmm. between the touch screen technology mm -hmm. and the technology that involves like a style, it's like a physical barrier, like a mouse. Yeah, exactly. And wow. that's why I started, uh, I think, with Palm Pilot and Sharp Zoras and Galaxy Note uh, and now the Fold. So oh, the, uh, all the devices that I have with me uh, have a stylus. Is that for your own, that's so interesting to me, is mm -hmm. it for your own ability to be able to put it down? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because it just feels like more easy mm -hmm. in some ways because there's a physical barrier, is that what you mean? No, no, the, it's the intentionality. Yeah. Right? Like uh, with a stylus. Are. You yeah. cannot accidentally doom scroll. Right. Yeah. Like it's like you're, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like we need to adopt Okay, so you, so you always interact with something and that physical barrier makes it easier for you mm -hmm. to not get caught up in that sort of like, you know, yeah. mending your mind with your, my phone, which I <laughs> use my thumb with. Uh-huh. Yes. And, oh my God. Yes. And, and it's a different social cue, right? Because if I, uh, like unfold my phone and start using the stylus. Yeah. This is a, a social invitation, uh -huh. right? This is like when I'm uh, scribbling on my notebook yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. open for you yeah. to see. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're uh, implicitly invited. Whereas uh, when you're holding the phone in front of you. It's a microaggression, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I think that's so interesting. Me too, yeah. And I'm like, I need a stylus. Yeah, we, we're going to get a stylus <laughs> yeah. right after this. <laughs> okay, so thinking about Actually, I guess I could go back a little bit. The idea of sort of like the internet being this place that, like what you were saying, you can have a neighborhood that isn't mm -hmm. necessarily something physical, kind of like positive aspects mm -hmm. of the internet. I feel like we've lived through a time where we thought it was a really positive thing. Mm -hmm. And it feels like in more recent times, it's become more of a challenge. Mm -hmm. The idea of this, the internet being this positive open place. Do you feel mm -hmm. the same way? Do you notice that there was a shift for you at all mm -hmm. as someone who's been so involved with tech and the internet? Did you mm -hmm. feel like there was a time where you thought, mm -hmm. oh my God, I, something's going wrong or I need to figure out how to help this thing be what I thought it could be? Mm -hmm. No, that's a great question. And as I mentioned, touchscreen 
really changed everything. Wow. Yeah. So uh, around 2013, 14, uh, people were uh, discovering that it's actually easier to be polarized and hate each other uh, on internet compared mm -hmm. to the previous uh, era, where it is actually uh, takes a deliberate uh, intention to start a flame war. Uh, but around 2014, people huh. started to discover which with touchscreens, mm -hmm. it's actually easier to start a flame war or outrage compared to uh, friendship or whatever right. online. And that's first because people were uh, being uh, scrolled by their screens. So uh -huh. they were operating in this fast system, uh, not a slow system of deliberate syncing. And also because the touch screens are so small, there's literally no context to hold both sides. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So even if you have a long form content, you'll scroll to one region and which is by definition out of context. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh my wow. God! So you really think mm -hmm. that it has a physical? It, it's mm -hmm. a, even going back to what you said earlier. It's the mm -hmm. touch screen aspect is what you think physically yeah. changed things. Touch screen and smaller screens. Oh my God! That's so <laughs> I don't know. That's so interesting because that's like such a specific answer I did not expect. Do you think then wow. that is an important consideration for design of mm -hmm. the technologies we use? Like mm -hmm. coming from producers of technology, is mm -hmm. that something that should be thought put, put more thought into? Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the time, <clears throat> I'm working as an uh, interaction designer uh, and engineer in Social Text. Uh, Social Text was a company in Silicon Valley that takes like wiki or microblogging or really anything that happens in the community of the internet and repurpose it for uh, enterprise work in the flow of work. Uh, so think Slack or mm -hmm. collaborative do documents or spreadsheets, and we've been doing that since like 2006, 2008. Uh, and so when I worked on that and on the social text mobile uh, experience, we found that the push notifications uh, is the most dangerous mix in addition mm -hmm. to the touch screen and the small screen. Because mm -hmm. it takes your mind away. Exactly. It forces the context shift. And so uh, at the time we work on Social Tech Signal, which is its own mobile app, and we discover that if you turn push notification on and you only have Social Tech Signal on your phone, it increases your productivity. But as soon as you have another message system, uh, Yammer or whatever, yeah. on your phone, then the productivity just huh. comes. So because, now there's so many on our phone, right, exactly. so many different like push notifications mm -hmm. taking your brain all over. That's right. Wow. That's interesting. It's interesting to think about how something can be very useful in the context mm -hmm. of like a singular form, but as it mm -hmm. starts to interact and compete with other forms mm -hmm. of the same thing, it causes bigger problems. Right, exactly, exactly. So, <clears throat> which is why I intentionally uh, choose a phone that folds into an iPad hmm. and uh, a pad, really, the full <laughs> screen, uh, and that I disable push notification and I only interact with it uh, with a stylus. So, it's the three layers of defense. Even if I like fall into the bad habit on one side, it's not as addictive as when it's combined to a cocktail. So I can always uh, get out of the, the trance, so to speak. Oh my God, this is blowing my mind. I'm like, I need to practice you, all of those I, things. Yeah. I'm curious what you think about what people can do about this. Like, is it mm -hmm. is the best practice to think about it for yourself? Yeah. Or is this something that needs to be People, regulated. Yeah, or talk, like companies need to mm -hmm. think about a little more in terms of protecting citizens and making sure that we can be pro like productive mm -hmm. and have autonomy over our time. No, definitely. And uh, <clears throat> so let me try this again. <clears throat> definitely. And uh, what we've seen is that when combined with precision targeted advertisements, uh, it fuels a uh, cycle where people are distracted 
into something that may be a financial scam or things like that, because people, when they're distracted, are more easily um, scammed, persuaded. Mm -hmm. persuaded, right? So precision persuasion uh, is um, like borderline illegal or even criminal, like financial scams, um, thrive on this environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas uh, if it is a very large screen and with keyboard, it's far less likely for people to fall into this cryptocurrency scams and so on. We have actually seen, uh, for example, on Facebook, not to single it out, but on Facebook, <laughs> there are uh, people who place like deep faked uh, advertisements uh, of a political figure, a public figure saying that, oh, I earn so much in crypto right. or uh, investing in something. And just because, you know, people are just scrolling, doom scrolling, see a face they recognize and they just click through and start, you know, uh-huh. getting scammed. So we actually passed a law this year in Taiwan that says if Facebook, after we notice it, uh, that there is such a deepfake financial scam and they don't take it down and somebody get conned uh, for like $1 million or whatever, then Facebook is also liable for wow. that $1 million. So this is a kind of re-internalizing the right. negative uh, effect it has on society. Do you think that there's a future where, the, like, you're obviously talking about doom scrolling, and I'm relating because mm-hmm. I'm like mm-hmm. in my life finding it hard to get off my phone and live my mm-hmm. life and be happy. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's a future where it becomes such an issue for so many people that what the things you're describing become mm-hmm. the solution, mm-hmm. or do you think it involves regulation, like you're <clears throat> describing, from the government to help mm-hmm. regulate people mm-hmm. into better habits? Like, do you feel like in the future mm-hmm. we might? end up there on our own? Or do you think it Mm -hmm. needs to be, it's too powerful that we have to regulate it? Yeah, I think when there is a clearly identified social harm and re-internalizing the liability uh, doesn't cause um, extra harm, right? It's difficult to to say uh, that if we uh, hold Facebook liable for this kind of financial scams, uh, what kind of progress will it hinder or stifle? can't really think of a yeah. counter argument, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, when people understand the harm that it's causing, uh, just like um, back when, uh, many decades ago uh, in my youth, there was this Montreux protocol against uh, the Freon, right? The refrigerating compound that destroys yeah. the, the ozone. The ozone. Yeah. And, and everybody understands refrigeration is a great thing. It's right. a great invention. Uh, but the replacement that doesn't uh, destroy the ozone have not been invented. Mm-hmm. But once people start realizing there's a direct causation uh, between freon and depletion of ozone. People nevertheless committed to replace that maybe decades Uh. in the future and reinvest into inventing new compounds Mm. that doesn't destroy the ozone. And ozone is mostly healed now. So uh, I think using that as a powerful example, we need to treat our fabric of trust and frankly our sanity (laughs) as some kind of an ozone that cannot be depleted. That's a really great metaphor for an analogy for like all these problems, I think, as Greg was kind of saying, when we first started working on the internet, which is about 12 years ago mm-hmm. now, it just felt so exciting. It felt like the bastion of all this information, mm-hmm. and we were so excited. And we're kind of in an age now where I think people are a little scared mm-hmm. because everything's transforming so fast. You talked about deep fakes, like the ability mm-hmm. for even me, who considers myself like highly educated, good at the internet, mm-hmm. can be tricked by something yeah. like this. Um, to, to know that there's kinds of solutions out there and systems we can create to kind of catch them. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, do you think the speed at which the technology mm-hmm. seems to be changing now is manageable for us? Or do you have hope around like mm-hmm. how we can make sure that these kinds of things are looked after? Yeah, uh, I think the uh, science and technology speed 
is overwhelming for any single individual mm -hmm. and has been so since the printing press. <laughs> so it's, it's not a new problem. <laughs> Everyone's freaking out no matter what. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I think the difference right, is whether uh, technologies that increases uh, collective sense making, so uh, coordinating uh, to identify problems like the ozone depletion, is that accelerating faster hmm. than the disruptive right. kind of technologies. Yeah. If they are kept in tandem, then of course I have a firm belief in democracy mm -hmm. being not a problem but a solution. Right. right. So it's just that our current democratic process doesn't have enough bandwidth. Uh, it's just a few bits every four years uploaded yeah. by each right. person. Right. So yeah. like very small bandwidth, very high latency, like mm -hmm. every two years. Yeah. Right? yeah. But if we do this continuously, we right. can very quickly identify common um, issues and also brainstorm uh, solutions to it just in the here and now. And this is uh, really our trick uh, in overcoming the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We've not had a single day of lockdown where people cannot move across cities uh, throughout the three years. And that's because people learned epidemiology uh, by this every 2 p.m. Uh, science channel. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, held by our uh, health minister. Uh, and anyone can ask questions by just calling 1822. And the top uh, frequently asked questions get answered next 2 p.m. Wow, wow. So, that's yeah. so cool. So something as that. simple as that right. actually equip the society with the capability to innovate, to counter each mutation right. of the virus, which is going even faster than technology. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a scientific fact. Yes. <laughs> so that kind of makes me think about AI. Mm -hmm. And because I feel like that is sort of the place we're at now, I think in the science community, that's a huge discussion. Is like, in all communities, like AI seems to be infiltrating everything and obviously mm -hmm. happening fast. So in your opinion, like thinking of that sort of metaphor of like mm -hmm. advancing, like trying to keep it in, in tandem, like in a place that's good, like where do you feel it's mm -hmm. at now? Maybe starting, what do you think are the most positive benefits of AI? And then we're going to talk mm -hmm. about like the risks. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it used to be that we can only closely collaborate with people who we already somewhat share a culture with. Uh, and with people with very different culture, very different language, yeah. a very different worldview, it's okay to maybe do some transactions or voting together <clears throat> or things like that. But it's much harder to just you know, talk about the community issues because people approach it from very different perspectives. Um, but with AI, what I'm most excited about is that it models the language and therefore some of the worldviews or assumptions uh, in the language. So I literally can uh, plot uh, a visualization of what people are talking about AI. People who concerns about safety, about progress, about democratic participation, and just visualize, reflect back that common communal viewpoint and synthesize them as avatars and talk to those avatars and so on and ask AI to find the common ground, huh. to build a bridge, to find statements that people on both sides agree with. Mm. Uh, and I call this plurality or collaborative diversity. So using AI to actually mm -hmm. understand where opinions yeah. come together on either side or... Yes, and uh, we actually run wow. a lot of those conversations uh, and also in conjunction with the Collective Intelligence Project, uh, work with Anthropic and OpenAI and other top labs. Anthropic um, used this process uh, to ask a statistically representative 1,000 people in the US to co-create a constitution for AI of how it should behave huh. and compare it to the default Claude, which is the Anthropic version uh, written by the researchers mm -hmm. and huh. found that they're equally powerful 
but the people's AR shows much less bias. Hmm. Huh. Because it's reflective of yeah, actually. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, the, the communities. Yeah. Right? Huh. Uh, and, and this is great because this is the first major transformative technology that you can tune it just by talking to it. Mm. Mm. You can't say that about refrigeration, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about AI as in like the concept mm -hmm. of everyone being able to sort of write or talk to yes. a specific technology and then have it sort of meld all the information together because it's a complicated thing. I don't know how that works. Meld mm -hmm. the information together to create like a statement or a concept that mixes yes. everyone's opinion. For citation purposes, it is called coherent blended volition. Coherent blended volition is, the, is what is you would call that? It's a technical term, yeah. Wow. And, and this is uh, one example. Um, and this is public uh, website, so you can you know, screen cap it. Sure. Later. Right, so this is Talk back, to the city. Yeah, so this is back when Twitter was still called Twitter, uh, this uh, April, early April. And uh, the Talk to the City team, this is open source, by the way, uh, just found a, a snapshot of the Twitter sphere. Each one is one tweet uh, that talks about uh. these clusters. And uh, it not only summarizes into a kind of executive summary, um, it can actually let you drill down to any Thing and start a conversation oh, wow. mm. with that cluster. Yeah. And this is just using people's tweets. Yes, exactly. So there's not even an asking them to say their opinion mm -hmm. about something. It's just something they've already decided to say. Yeah, exactly. And, and oh. this is another example. So this is, uh, instead of AI, it's talking about the prison system okay. uh, in Michigan. Uh, mm. So uh, the local community organizer interviewed a lot of returning citizens uh, about their experience. Now, um, when we talk about um, preferences, actually individuals um, don't have a fixed preference outside of their communities. It is only when anchored on, say, returning citizens, uh, that people have a cohering, uh, blended volition mm. that we can actually trace back so there's no confabulation. Mm. Uh, like each and every thought is something that, that someone said, said right. actually wow. said. Uh, and then you can uh, start a full screen map and show exactly the same kind of cluster. And you can synthesize uh, into a communal voice. So this is the positive aspects of AI. Mm -hmm. Yes. This is using AI to mm -hmm. like understand, understand people better. Exactly. And, and that goes back wow. to your point of how different wow. communities have different needs mm -hmm. and desires. Different cultures may come yes. from different perspectives. That's right. Do you think in, in an increasingly globalized world, like how mm -hmm. do we manage for some cultures being extremely different, having different belief systems. Mm -hmm. But as we like meld yeah. together more and more, is there mm -hmm. just like higher level AI systems? Yeah, recursively, can, right? right? So the idea is just to build those cultural translators. Hmm. Uh, and so we can augment it uh, with immersive technologies, like literally living in each other's shoes for a while and so on. And uh, in my ministry, uh, hmm. we have an annual event called the Ideathon. So like hackathon, but not code, <laughs> right? But ideas. And uh, one of the winning ideas uh, this year is exactly about you know, living in the synthetic avatar of this community's mm -hmm. shoes so that you can just put on VR or whatever and see things literally from their viewpoint wow. and just be in that community for mm -hmm. a while. So that maybe, like, what are the more scary negative mm -hmm. aspects of AI, because that's a really positive take on AI. Yeah. I feel it's like, like people... any technology, you know, mm -hmm. there's the, the good and the bad that yes. comes along. What, mm -hmm. what are the more worrisome or things that we as societies need to be aware of and look mm -hmm. out for mm -hmm. and plan for in terms of AI? Do, do you see another angle of that? Yeah, so I talk about this continuous democracy. 
but AI poses a severe threat to the traditional uh, representative democracy uh, because if you just manage to deeply persuade people the night before the election or the night after the election mm. that the election didn't go as you know <laughs> <laughs> the people intended, then uh, as we have seen in some democratic countries, uh, it, it really fractures the society. Mm -hmm. uh, it is now much easier to mount this kind of what we call information integrity attacks. So why is that through mm -hmm. AI? I don't understand how yeah. it becomes easier because what, mm -hmm. like, yeah, what's an example? Yeah. So an example would be, as I mentioned, uh, to con someone uh, with a financial scam uh, in a certain community, it used to be that you have to speak the language and understand the culture uh, and also find someone uh, huh. who is believable enough. Right. Huh. But all this has been overcame by AI. Wow. You don't even need to speak a language right. or live in that culture, right? You can just say your script and ask a generative AI to say this the way Audrey would say in right. their local culture. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's a very so profound example. Easier to be targeted mm -hmm. by someone who otherwise would maybe not be able to target. Right. So yeah. we talk about cultural translation and bridge making, uh, but what's to cross that bridge? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there's also like if you think about the use of AI, like that's a those are both examples about like society and elections and democracy. But then I think in the science field, there's a lot of concern about um, like realistic fake scientific studies mm -hmm. and like truly like in the positive aspect would be that maybe you could get a really intelligent professor to say, rewrite my paper in a way that people could understand. Mm. Like, like our job becomes obsolete, but that's a good thing for the public. Like there's mm -hmm. a positive aspect of science information. Yeah. But then the negative aspect is that you could just like actually create fake studies and then trick people. Mm -hmm. Does it feel like AI in every field of the world can kind of have that positive or negative thing and we're just mm -hmm. at the precipice of like deciding where it goes? Yeah, generative AI is quite different from the previous AI, which are more narrow uh, in nature. Generative AI, uh, like a language model, oh, that yeah. models the language, uh, excels when you ask it questions that it can answer by its understanding of language alone. So content translation that we just talked about is mm -hmm. one very good example. Even across modalities, like with this article, uh, produce this video or image mm -hmm. or things like that. Or summarization, uh, which is also uh, all the output information can be found in the input information. Yeah. So the demo I showed you is summarization from very long videos huh. uh, into the community voices. Yeah. So things that are equal or reducing in information, yeah. compression basically, uh, are the best uses of language models. Mm -hmm. But there are many people who use it the other way. Huh. Right. So literally asking it to make things up. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, if you ask it to write a convincing, um, you know, propaganda in the style of a politician and so on, your question is very short, mm -hmm. but you expect thousands of words. Yeah. In which case, the generative model has no other choice but to make things but up. To make right. things up. Right. Interesting, because now I'm realizing that, that how similar that my example about science is. It's still all generative and mm -hmm. still language based and mm -hmm. still about. Mm -hmm summarizing or what mm -hmm. you said like opposite of summarizing mm -hmm. so i thought it was so different in my head but it's actually not mm -hmm. so ai has a specific function really mm -hmm. it really is about that it's about language mm -hmm. summarizing and then yes. information exactly. at this point exactly and there's a uh, very exciting research uh it's 
works like a light detector for neural systems, <laughs> so that whenever AI feels the urge to make things up, uh, its neurons fire in a different pattern. Hmm. Uh, and so we can actually... Well, that's real? Yeah, that's real. No, wow. for this kind of frontier systems. Uh, wow. You can now, if you can inspect uh, its uh, activation patterns, mm. uh, there's a clear distinction between things that are from the original input set, so huh. they can just answer truthfully, uh, or truthfully saying, I don't know, huh. and the pathways that are uh, when Maybe. it's making things up. Yeah. That's so crazy. So is that solution <laughs> to, because obviously many people are worried about like, mm -hmm. especially we're in this age of information, mm -hmm. and now that so much information can mm -hmm. be made so quickly, in your mind, do you see the solution mm -hmm. as creating these other systems that try to hold right, these right. systems it, it, It's like, you know, refrigeration, chemical agents that doesn't destroy the right. ozone. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how do we put in the effort to yeah. find a solution, even if we don't have it right now, yeah. we know what the problem is. Exactly, exactly. solving that problem. Right, because there's a lot of achievements uh, throughout the past year about uh, rendering the output uh, harmless. Mm -hmm. But there's comparably uh, less achievement uh, on keeping it honest, like not making things up. Right. Mm. But these two uh, are integral to information integrity. So only when we can evaluate AAM model in an open fashion, uh, what we call collaborative red teaming. Red teaming means to uh, get it to say dishonest things and get it to say harmful things. Uh, when we open up this kind of red teaming, we can discover vulnerabilities in the current generation of language models and hopefully quickly move to where, by default, language models should be honest and harmless. Huh. Uh, and then at that time, then we can maybe sign a Montreal protocol and say, you know, the ozone depleting uh, chemical agents are just uh -huh. not good, you know. Because there have been recent sort of like um, legislative meetings like mm -hmm. about AI, mm -hmm. but not much has come out of them. Mm -hmm. Like from my understanding, just reading mm -hmm. about them, people getting together and being like, it could be bad, it could be good. Is that where you come in? Are you someone who's mm -hmm. trying to meet with people to try and figure out how to create a Montreal, like is that your goal, like Montreal yes. protocol vibes of AI? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my work uh, with the Collective Intelligence Project, I was in uh, the UNIGF in Kyoto. Uh, I helped uh, crafting this open and safe joint statement uh, around the Bletchley Park Summit uh, and so on. And the uh, main idea is just to shift this race to power to a race to safety. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, uh, there's, uh, for each uh, safety researcher in AI, there's around 30 uh, capability researchers, huh. right? So trying to make, is that right. like money? Trying to make money, capability uh, Just a number of researchers, Okay. right? So there's much more people researching in how to make AI more powerful uh, huh. compared to the people who want to make AI honest Safe. and uh, harmless. Wow. That's scary. Right, so we need to massively <laughs> increase the investment yeah. here. Right. That's, that's the main idea. Interesting. I guess like anything, like even in biology, there's always a bit of an arms race, right? If this side goes, then this side has to react, then mm -hmm. this side goes. Like even in virus control in real life and in computer life, like mm -hmm. it's always a back and forth of... So in some ways, like you said, we're all just maybe a little afraid of the printing press right now, but mm -hmm. hopefully it can find its way to find the solutions. But it's, it mm -hmm. makes me think of the classic private versus public mm -hmm. funding. Is safety sort mm -hmm. of more of something that you think would be publicly mm -hmm. funded, whereas you know what I mean? Like I'm thinking that reminds mm -hmm. me of the concept of mm -hmm. relying on the private sector. To me, that means making money. I can see why there's a lot more people in that. The idea of regulation mm -hmm. and safety to me reminds me of like publicly funded. Is that the way it kind of is right now? Like how would you get more mm -hmm. people involved in safety? 
Well, I think most of the uh, research and development on better refrigeration is still in the private sector, mm. even after the Montreal Protocol. Protocol. So it was like a regulative <laughs> yeah. thing from the public sector mm -hmm. that forced the private sector to... Exactly. So to me, this is what I call a people-public-private partnership. People yeah, first yeah. the people, the social sector, uh, organizes and show very clearly. For example, recently in the US, we heard very clearly from the people in Hollywood uh, that it's okay for AI to enhance writers, mm -hmm. but it's never okay for AI to replace mm -hmm. writers. Okay. Right? So that is something the social sector, the civil society, has very clearly signaled. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after a few of those successful negotiation and bargaining and so on, the norm become a regulation. Right. Uh, and the state would say, you know, anything below the standard is simply toxic. Right. It's mm. simply harmful to the environment. Mm. Uh, and then uh, the race to safety means that investors will change their investment mm. so that they will invest in things that actually improve the situation because mm. that's where the money is now. Mm. Wow. So if you do that throughout AI across the mm -hmm. fields and because it's affecting, I didn't even think about Hollywood, mm -hmm. thinking about science. So it affects all aspects and you have to figure out the versions of exactly. people, public, what did you call it? The People-Public-Private Partnership. Okay, yeah. That's good. Yeah, P-P-P-P-P-P-P-P-P. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. Like, the people have to care about these things and be informed mm -hmm. and then make that influence in the long mm -hmm. run. Like, even when it comes to climate change, we see, like, there's a lot of discussion around sort of this top-down versus mm -hmm. bottom-up. You know, I, as an individual, shouldn't be held fully responsible for all the problems in the world, but it matters. Like, we can say, oh, certain corporations are responsible for a mm -hmm, much mm -hmm. uh, bigger percentage. But it also takes me caring about that mm -hmm. and changing my habits to ultimately yeah. change the world around us to then change whether how the private sector might act and how the government mm -hmm. may act in terms of those. So I guess mm -hmm. like that people-private <laughs> partnership yes. is, can, can co across many fields. Yeah, or we just call it collective intelligence. Right. So, so the, the CI approach instead of the AI approach, uh, we can call it augmented collective intelligence, okay. maybe ACI, uh, <laughs> just to pull it all together. Uh, right, so the, the ACI, not AGI approach, uh, is that uh, people are experts in their community preferences. People can offer very nuanced uh, inputs. Uh, for example, when we run alignment assemblies in Taiwan, people said very clearly they want a public option of AI. Mm. That is to say AI that the public can fine-tune on their own mm. uh, and understand where all the data is coming from and things like that. And uh, it's just like science, right? People should be able to reproduce uh, things at home or at a lab, right? Uh, and uh, with this strong preference, then we're um, having a stronger mandate now uh, at the end of the year to do the, our AI evaluation center with what we call societal evaluations. So asking people to keep informing us and tuning uh, AI models to show us uh, where uh, it works better. Now, the thing with uh, either the American public uh, that Anthropic and OpenAI work with or the Taiwanese public, is just that when people's uh, preferences are very nuanced, like uh, over-reliance is a big no-no, but if we control this particular fine-tuning ability, it becomes slightly more okay and so on. Uh, in traditional polling, um, you can think of it as a very lossy compression so that when it becomes a synthetic document or executive summary, all the nuance is lost. Right. Mm. And if you just read the headlines, right, mm, it's yeah. just, just us versus them. Right? Right. Yeah. Even though most people agree with most of their neighbor on most mm -hmm. of the points yeah. in a nuanced uh, view, when mm. you force a compression, 
then it becomes polarized again. Right. Uh, so which is why this kind of like talk to the city and so on are so important because it's a compression that doesn't compress out the nuance. Okay. Wow. This, in some ways, some of these conversations remind me, I saw an interview question of you asked once, like as a trans person, you mm -hmm. talked about this idea of transculturalism, yeah, yes. um, which I thought was really interesting. I wonder if you could yeah. talk about that a little. I think you're sure. the first mm -hmm. trans like yes. um, uh, um, politician the here. First Publicly, uh, trans, fair. yes, that's uh, fair. member in the world. Um, Maybe everybody's in the closet. We that's true. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Um, and I just, as we've been talking about the importance of like the different kinds of cultures around mm -hmm. the world and, and their positions, but also the integration of the world. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious. I uh, would love to hear you more talk. Sorry, mm -hmm. hear you talk more about that mm -hmm. idea of transculturalism. Yeah. No, I, I'm non-binary in everything, right? <laughs> not, not just in gender, but also political parties right. and so on, right? So uh, the fundamental idea is that I don't think there's half of the world that's more distant from me and half the world closer to me. I don't have that instinct. Mm -hmm. um, I literally take all the sides. Uh, if I see a side that I cannot relate to, it's my problem, not their problem. Mm. Uh, and so I should spend more time in their culture uh, doing a ethnographic or really just hanging out, <laughs> hanging out <laughs> with these people uh, until I can uh, argue from their viewpoint, mm. whether it is the uh, more than 20 national languages of Taiwan, indigenous nations, whether this is the political affiliations and so on. I feel very strongly that we should be, you know, all 17 uh, SDG colors, mm -hmm. not just two colors right. uh, and so on. Uh, and I think this gives my uh, style of politics a uh, what we call credible neutrality, mm. uh, meaning that uh, people would trust that if they uh, voice their concerns, even though they're a minority, because we care about bridge making, their voice would not be compressed out. Mm. Whereas if I take any particular side, there's a natural tendency mm. to compress out uh, like the views outside of the overtone window, meaning right. that it's too distant from yeah. your ideology. Yeah. So you consider yourself not non-binary outside mm -hmm. of gender. Like people mm -hmm. always assume of gender right now mm -hmm. to say non-binary, but you mm -hmm. mean it to every aspect of your life. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Wei or digital in traditional Mandarin uh, also means plural. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm also a minister of plurality, mm -hmm. like more than one and certainly more than two. Yeah. And you've also said you're post-gender. Yeah. Uh -huh. So what does that mean to you? Yeah. So to me, uh, it's not that uh, I uh, work with um, people who are identified as one particular gender uh, and consider them more close uh, than the other people. Mm. Uh, so instead of, you know, choosing uh, between LGBTIQA+, plus, uh, basically I'm just saying, you know, I'm whatever. My mm -hmm. pronouns are whatever. If you look at my x.com profile, it literally says uh, star slash star, uh, <laughs> which is internet speak for any and all. Right. Mm. right? So you can use any pronoun. Right. Mm. Okay. Interesting. How do you see wow. the importance of, like, we can see how much we can learn from, in your example, indigenous communities around the world. The same thing has happened in Canada, where for many hundreds of years, it's been ignored and dismissed. And now we're realizing there's so much knowledge and information that we can gain from those mm -hmm. communities. But at the same time, we see the world in some ways become more homogenous and more connected by the mm -hmm. internet and more similar. How important do you think it is to preserve those communities? Um, mm -hmm. To learn from them? And, and what do we do to preserve, whether it be language or culture or just knowledge and wisdom, um, how do we manage that while the world becomes more intertwined? 
Yeah, just uh, yesterday I was in the Sabadic uh, tribe within the Paiwan Nation in the south uh, of Taiwan, uh, and we talked with many um, like um, the principals of the local high schools and primary schools and and all that, and they all love the idea of AI that speaks their language, mm -hmm. understand their language, translates this language, and also let their cultural tradition uh, thrive in the internet, mm -hmm. on the internet. Uh, that is to say, to convey their worldview in a way that would relate uh, to other cultures. Uh, whereas it was difficult outside of uh, like pop culture, singers and so on, uh, for people to understand the full lived experience mm -hmm. of the, the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, now it is quite easy actually with generative AI mm -hmm. uh, because their, their input bits, it's very, very large. Mm -hmm. It's uh, literally their lived experiences, <laughs> right? So um, anyone can put into uh, immersive reality or interactive gaming or things like that with m a minimum of training. It used to be you have to learn um, Unity, a real engine <laughs> or whatever <laughs> to create a kind of experience that I was describing. But now you can you know, just skip all that. Uh, and uh, they're very excited in working uh, with the top AI labs here in Taiwan uh, to uh, fit the language models to their culture instead of uh, shoehorning their culture into the mainstream, very large models that really only speaks the mainstream languages. Yeah. When it, like going back to sort of the idea of being non-binary and everything, mm -hmm. I feel like it's so in our era and so what people say now, which is like every, everything's divided everything's binary. Mm -hmm. It feels like that's sort of, in some ways, maybe true. Like, mm -hmm. it, do you find it frustrating to no, live no, no, no. in a worldview of non-binary where as it feels like the world becomes more binary? Mm -hmm. do you, or do you even think that's true? Do you even think the world's becoming more mm -hmm. binary? I think there are more dimensions now, mm -hmm. right? So the world is becoming more intersectional. It's both easier to find our differences mm -hmm. and our similarities mm -hmm. because the dimensions are larger mm -hmm. uh, and the bandwidth has increased. Mm -hmm. uh, and so instead of focusing on the one or two main differences, which is called polarization, yeah. uh, we can instead uh, just focus on things that we can both live with. Um, and there's a um, Leonard Cohen saying that I really love, uh, says that uh, there is a crack in everything and that is how the light gets in. Mm -hmm. right, so if we're all perfectly, you know, fungible, mm -hmm. right, then, then there is no communication, there's no bridge making. Mm -hmm. But uh, exactly because there are tensions, so it gives opportunity for co-creation. That's such a good... Mm -hmm. yeah. Is Leonard Cohen big in Taiwan? <laughs> well, Mon uh, Montreal boy, you like Montreal. <laughs> yeah. That's right, that's right. No, I, I think there's a lot of people who uh, in Taiwan uh, learned about Leonard Cohen because really? I keep quoting Leonard Cohen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh wow, so you're the Leonard <laughs> Cohen fan. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, and, and I mean, in Taiwan, we're caught between uh, two tectonic plates, right? Mm. Uh, the Eurasian one and the Philippine Sea plate. Uh, and so there's like three felt earthquakes every day somewhere in mm. Taiwan. So a lot of earthquakes. But as a result, every year, um, the Yushan, the top of Taiwan, grows by um, half a centimeter or so. Mm. Right? So this is just okay. because it keeps bumping into one another. So without conflict, without tension, there is no co-creation. Mm -hmm. So we need to just harness this energy like the people in Wikipedia did, mm -hmm. uh, instead of just assuming that, you know, division is bad. Right.
Who else has a good voice then? Yeah, no. That was beautiful. That was an amazing analogy, an amazing conversation. We appreciate your time yeah. so much. And your You're mind. so amazing. Yeah, we're really inspired by you. Yeah. And it's been awesome to have this conversation. So we Thank appreciate you so it. Much. And we feel Thank very you. honored. And yeah. come back as Taiwanese residents. We will, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God, we're so honored. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to watch that mountain grow. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. Live long, prosper. Yay. <laughs> Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.